So uh, a couple of months ago, I got a phone call uh, from a, a friend, and he said, um, I need your help on your day off this week. Now, his job, just so you know, is that he provides a lot of the cars for Hollywood. Um, he might even be here this morning. And so his, his work is to get these different cars onto different film sets and TV sets that you, you and I watch. And he said, I've got to get um, a Mercedes G-Wagon, and I've got to get a Ferrari to this film set. And being a bit of a car guy, it took me about 11 seconds to say, yes, I'd like to come and drive a Ferrari in a G-Wagon for an afternoon. So <laughs> I uh, went up with him, and we drove these cars up to the Santa Clarita Mountains to this airstrip. And there they were filming uh, a rap video for the Fanatics. It was the new soundtrack to the Gran Turismo PlayStation game. If you don't know what any of those things are, you're not cool enough, but it's OK, because I wasn't cool enough either to know what any of those things were. And we got there, and they were filming these kind of amazing chase scenes with like cool cars going up and down the runway and artsy shots. And all I was there to do was to deliver this car and to take it back again. And so I spent some time in the afternoon, a bit of time working, but I also spent the time trying to figure out how film sets work, how like what different people do. And so I, I just went around for, for about like six, seven hours just asking people questions. I'm like, hey, what do you do? I learned what a PA is. I learned what a director is. I learned what a producer is. I learned all these different people's stories on this film set. But I also realized I was sort of there not to be a pastor. It was like one of those rare days when I was not there as their pastor. And so I kind of kept my mouth a little bit quiet as to who I was. People said, well, what do you do? And I was just like, oh, I'm, you know, I really love cars, and I'm just here helping out for the day. And you know, I was just trying to be really, really careful. And I talked about my background in cars and living in England and those sorts of things. But by about 10 o'clock at night, the conversations were still kind of going on, and I found myself in a little conversation between the director, the producer, one other person, and myself. And I'd done my best not to say very much until that point, and they said, but, but why are you here? What are you doing here today? Do you work in this industry? And I had to go, well, not so much, actually. Actually, if I'm really honest, I'm a pastor. I'm just here today helping out. And it was fascinating seeing the four different people's responses. The first person looked at me with this look of like amazement and excitement. It's like, that's awesome. What do you do? Where's your church? And I told them a bit about this place. The second person looked at me with a look of complete shock. Like, but you're like a nice youngish guy who likes cars. Why would you, you, know, why would you be a pastor? What a weird thing. The third person looked at me, though, we just kind of walked off. And the fourth person looked at me with this look of like, almost like fear and anxiety that came across her face, clearly with all sorts of baggage and stories and history from being involved in churches. And it reminded me, the reason I share it this morning, is because it reminded me that we are in a particular cultural moment where talking about Jesus is not easy. We're sharing the things that God's done in our lives where the things he's put inside of us with other people in this city can be complicated, can be fraught with different responses and different things. And so as we launch into a new adventure as a church here in the center of Pasadena and throughout the San Gabriel Valley, I want to talk about how it is that we do share faith, how we speak of the truths and the things that we've found in a city like this. And so we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. And if you don't have your Bibles, we'll try and get it up on the screens or something like that. But we're going to have our reading, which should come from Acts chapter 17, 16 to 34. Anyone think they're reading that this morning? 
Yes. Here we go. Come on up. Thanks, Eliza. Here you go. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned with the synagogue, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in the in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in the temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands. And if he needed anything, rather he himself, every, everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man he made all the nations, that they should inhibit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in the history and boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he was not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, and some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, we are God's offspring. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of everyone by rising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Thanks, Frank. So, in 2022, in the middle of a city like this one, should we talk about the things we believe? And if we should, how might we even begin to share faith in this city? Well, I wanna look with you at three things that were true for the Apostle Paul that I believe are absolutely fundamental and unavoidable and important for the life of us today. And the first one is this, is that Paul loved the city he was in. Paul loved the city. So if you know anything about this bit of Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is in the middle of his second missionary journey. He's been traveling throughout Asia Minor and Europe, and he's currently in Athens, just chilling out. He's waiting for his friends Silas and Timothy to arrive. 
And Athens was like this incredible city in the ancient world. It was one of the greatest cities of all time ever, maybe, if they did one of those kind of like the top 10 cities on Instagram for this. This would have been like one of the top 10 cities. It was great because it was a center of culture and the arts, of intellectual debate. There were great uh, philosophers there, people that you've heard of, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus. They all lived there. But they also had like these famous playwrights, people like Menander, they lived there. It was a center of, of commerce and a center of technology. It was like the Silicon Valley of the time. But as well as those things, it was also a city that was deeply religious. If you walked around the marketplace, and we don't really have marketplaces in LA, I realize, but it was like the center of the city where people went to eat, where they went to drink, is where they went to do business and to listen, to hang out together. If you walked around the center, you would see all these idols and these statues and these temples everywhere. There were idols to Roman gods. There were idols to Greek gods, Roman Caesars, all sorts of different idols. In fact, one novelist at the time wrote about Athens, it's easier to meet a god in the streets of Athens than it is to meet a human being. And Paul's like right in the middle. I kind of picture him maybe with a little bit of feta cheese, a little bit of some olives, maybe a glass of red wine, you know, some sun-dried tomatoes, you know, something like that. He's right in the middle, just hanging out, waiting for his friends. And as he's there, God starts to speak to him. And he says that Paul's heart was greatly troubled, greatly distressed. His heart was broken for the city. And it's not broken because he was surprised. It's not like, oh, wow, I'd never seen any of this before. He'd probably been there before, but his heart was broken because God opened his eyes to something. And it wasn't the poverty, it wasn't the hedonism, it wasn't the slavery. The thing that broke Paul's heart was that this group of people were hurting. They were searching, they were longing, and they were looking for truth about who God is. But as they looked, they'd missed it. They'd not spotted it, and they were still looking. And because Paul's heart for the city was a heart for love, for their good and for their transformation, it says his heart broke because he realized how lost they really were. Paul loved the city. Andy Crouch, in his famous book, Culture Making, he talks about the way that as Christians we can often relate to the cultures and the context that we find ourselves in. He says that there's four ways that Christians often get involved. The first one is, is that as Christians, we can be really good at condemning our cities. We can look at what is evil and say that is bad, and we can call it out. The second thing we can also do is we can criticize. We look at things that are wrong and say that's got to change. But on the other side, we can also be people who consume our cities. We look at the world around and think that is just so great. Man, that coffee is so awesome. We need to have some of that. And then the third thing, the fourth thing we can do is we can, uh, we can uh, copy our cities. So we look at it and we think, man, that is, that is so good out there. We're going to take it for ourselves and we're going to do it like the world does it. And what Andy says is, if those are gestures, if those come from a heart of love for the transformation and the good of the places we are, All four of those might be really appropriate responses. Jesus condemned when he saw evil in the world. Jesus criticized specific behaviors and specific things that were not good for people. Jesus consumed, 
consumed red wine, <laughs> consumed uh, the, the good things in the culture. And Jesus also copied things. He spoke the life, the language of the culture. But what Andy Crouch says is that the problem comes when these outward gestures, the things that come from a place of love, become so familiar to us that we no longer recognize where they are, that we don't know how to respond in any other way. They become etched in our unconscious stance toward the world. And before we know it, we find ourselves in one of these four. Maybe you recognize it. We become people who condemn call out or anti the city. We can be people who just perpetually criticize everything we see as being no good. We can consume without any degree of understanding. We just think, man, that is really good and that looks really attractive and we're gonna take it on. And then we can even go further or we can say, actually, everything that's out there, we want to be in here. And we copy everything that exists in the city in our own lives. And Andy asked this question, I wonder in your neighborhood, on your street, in your school, in your place of work, what is it that Christians are known for? Are we known for being condemners? Are we known for being criticizers? Are we known for being copiers or even are we known for being consumers? Because I think how we have a posture towards the city it's so, so important. I've realized as I've been thinking about this city, I've, I've realized that sometimes I think the history of Christianity in LA and in London and many cities almost sounds a little bit like God spoke the really most famous verse in the Bible slightly differently. We think that John 3:16 actually really should say, for God so hated the world that he came and did something about it by judgment through Jesus. Well, actually, that's not what John 3:16 says. It says this, God so loved the world. God so loved your street. God so loved your business. God so loved your workplace. God so loved the city of Pasadena that he sent his one and only son so that through him all might find life and life eternal. Now, of course, we have to differentiate a little bit, don't we? I have to remind my kids all the time there is a difference between loving something and liking it. I have to tell my kids all the time, I love you, I really love you, but I don't always like what you're doing. <laughs> I sat at breakfast the other morning and they were fighting so much with each other that I started like lifting up a finger for every time they threw, threw an insult at each other. I was just keeping score on my hands until I ran out of hands. I was like, guys, I love you, but I do not like what you're doing. But I realized that as a parent, my call is to seek their good, is to seek their prosperity, is to seek that they would understand and know the love of God from themselves, even if I don't like everything that they do. And I reckon as Christians, that's the call that we hold for the places that God has put us in. I realize as a Christian that when God called Laura and I to this city, to this place, somewhere we didn't even know, it wasn't actually primarily about building a church that would, people would gather for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. It was actually to see the life of the city transformed with the good news of Jesus. That means I have to love it for all the things that I currently think are wonderful, like the mountains and the coffee and the great weather, except in August, September, and October when I want to go somewhere else. But it also means that I have to be prepared to love the city in its brokenness, in its traffic, in its poverty, in its segregation. My call is to bring the good news of Jesus in a place of love. 
Because ultimately, everybody knows my posture. Everybody knows your posture. You could fake it for a little while, but sooner or enough, people realize what's really in our hearts. What is your attitude towards the city? What's your heart? If you're from Pasadena, if you're from South Pass, or from Altadena, or Sierra Madre, or Arcadia, or San Gabriel, or Temple City, or wherever you're from, what is your heart towards the city? Paul had a love for the good of the city. But out of that love, something else happened. And the thing that happened is that Paul sought to understand the spiritual life. We see in verse 22 and 23, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Ropagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. See, when Paul got to Athens, he literally went and walked around the streets. He went and looked at the architecture. Maybe he spoke to the people. He tried to do that work of like an anthropologist or a missiologist to try and figure out like what is really going on in the soil here? What is the spiritual conversations that exist so that we can bring the good news of Jesus into those conversations? When we, Laura and I first got off the plane, we didn't know anything about Pasadena. And so I spent so many days in the streets around here, walking, talking, looking like a complete random weird person, just speaking to random people to ask them everything I could figure out about Pasadena. I spoke to people who'd lived here their whole lives, who'd gone through certain schools. I spoke to people who were like brand new, like I was as an immigrant to the city. I spoke to people who were you know, really wealthy. I spoke to people who were living on the streets. And I realized that there is such a history, there's a heritage of Christianity in Pasadena. That's why like, the buildings like this exist, because in the 1920s, there was this vision, this utopian vision, that in Pasadena, if they could build enough big churches, that by the 1950s, they would bring the churches and science and culture together, and they would see the transformation of Pasadena, so there would be no more hunger, there would be no more poverty, that they would get to this utopian future. Sadly, what they actually got to was the Great Depression of the 1930s. Sadly, what they actually got to was the Second World War, and they got to the threat of nuclear war here. There's been turbulence, there's been challenge, there's beauty in the soil, but there's also pain in the soil. For some people's experience of Pasadena is ultimately beautiful and wonderful, and others has been full of pain and segregation, depending on who you are, where you came from, what you look like. What is in the soil of your streets? What's in the soil of your school? What's in the soil of your friendship group? Where did the spiritual conversation come from? One thing we do know, I think, all of us, is that the world is changing so fast, isn't it? I don't think if I can keep up anymore. But these little slides that some of you will have seen before, they're the ugliest slides you'll have ever seen, I promise. Um, but they're very, they've really helped me since I came. And as I talk to people about Pasadena, they're like, yeah, these, this makes sense, because this is what we've experienced too, is that the conversation about spirituality has changed a lot. I think if you were to have been alive, and some of you were easily into your 50s by the time we got to the 1950s and 60s, no one in particular, John Lewis, um, not really. Um, <coughs> You would have probably walked into Pasadena on a Sunday morning and you will have noticed that Christianity was popular, it was relevant. 
People were really inquisitive about it. People knew instinctively that it was true, that Jesus was a really central figure in the life of the church and the world. And in that context, evangelism looked like a particular thing. In a way, evangelism was like this kind of defibrillator thing. It was a way that we said to people like, you already know it's true, but we need you to wake up. Wake up to what's true about God. Where are you gonna go when you die? And we had these incredibly gifted, beautiful, wonderful people like Billy Graham, who brought that sense of urgency and conviction and repentance and faith. But if you kind of fast forward to maybe like the 1980s, the 1990s, or even the 2000s, Y2K, baby, if anyone remembers that weird thing, then the world had changed. Certainly here in Pasadena, most places in the world were no longer the same anymore. I think on one side, Christianity was still true, largely to most people. It was still popular. People respected the role that churches played in society. But we also realized that the culture was changing. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, I've now got a neighbor who thinks that uh, Buddha is the way to faith. Or I've got someone who wants to worship their ancestors. Or I've got someone who thinks that Allah is the way, the truth, and the life. So how is one thing true when the other things are not true? And so we, we had people like Lee Strobel, you know him, who wrote The Case for Christ. These kind of modernist views of how you could bring proof to the resurrection of Jesus, to the stories of what we read in the Bible. But on the other hand, we had like MTV generation. We had Hollywood, we had color and lights. And against those backgrounds, church probably looked, I don't know, maybe just a bit boring. And so we had smoke machines. We had seeker-sensitive service. We had topical sermons because what we wanted to say was we're not irrelevant to the world that you live in. We matter. And I think there was some really good stuff there. But today, 2022, here in Pasadena, wherever you are this morning, I'm here to tell you the world is different. It's radically different to even how it was 20 years ago. We used to be at the center of culture. Actually, now as Christians, if we're honest, we're actually, particularly in our young generations, on the fringe. We used to be in the majority. I would imagine if you walked around Pasadena this morning, you would find that we might be in the minority. We used to be respected and seen as the center of truth. Now, like my friends, I met some of them on the film set. Actually, we're probably now seen as part of the problem and not the solution. This is a postmodern, post-Christian world. Even the nature of what's true has changed, right? It's not enough to say this is logically, modernly right and wrong because actually what people want to do is they want to experience truth. They want to discover truth. They don't want a boring, bald person on a stage to tell them what's true anymore. They want to find out what's right for themselves. And the spiritual conversation of our city has changed so, so much that it's left a lot of us going like, well, what do we do? How do we bring the things that we have found to be true? When people now are much more likely to go and find new ageism or they find, find technology or individual freedom or different kind of things than they are to come and find a church to find the answers. So what might we do? Because here's the thing that I've been wrestling with a lot in my life as I've been wrestling with this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to bring transformation, to bring hope, to bring rescue, 
to mean meaning to the world. And either 2,000 years ago he did that, and it was true then, and it's true now, or it was always just a load of rubbish. And when I was a teenager, what I came to experience was that God transformed my life and it was real. And my heart is that the city of Pasadena would know that same truth for itself. So what do we do? Well, let's look at what Paul did in Athens. Verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Ropagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I want to proclaim to you. Do you notice what Paul did? He didn't actually stand on a stage inside of a church building and say, hey guys, I want you to come and listen to me. No, actually what did Paul do? He went to dialogue in the center of the culture. He went to their meeting. He went on their terms. He used their references. He spoke their language and said, guys, I want to affirm some really brilliant things. I want to affirm the beauty that I can see. I want to affirm the religious searching that you've been doing. But I want to tell you something. You've missed the most important part. That you are looking for all the right things, but you're looking in the wrong place and you haven't found the thing that you really are looking for. So let me tell you. Let me tell you about Jesus. And I feel like the people I know in this city, the people I know in my family who don't know Jesus, they're longing to. They're hurting. With everything that's happened in the world in the last two years, they're probably as more confused, as more anxious as they've ever been before. And they want to know, is there something real out there? Is there something, as Peter Kreef said, of truth left? Is there something of goodness, of what might be just, what might be real, of what might bring justice and peace and reconciliation to the world? Is there something good anymore? And is there something of beauty? Because humanity is always drawn to beauty. And people are searching. They're searching in science and money and sex and freedom and relationships and body image and reputation and spiritual practice and great coffee or great wine. And they kind of figure, right, if I could just get enough, if I could just get far enough into that thing, then I will find the thing I'm looking for. But I realized in my own life when I was 30 and I had most of those things, I was still empty. I was still hungry. I still hadn't found what I was looking for. Why? Because it's not enough. Any idol in our life that we put up in the middle and we bow down in front of, whether it's money or sex or freedom or career, all of those things, sooner or later, we figure out it's just not enough. There's got to be something more. A few years ago, um, we were running an alpha course, and there was a girl on our alpha course. He, she was... Um, really into New Ageism. So much so she taught meditation and Reiki healing. And she said that, you know, being into New Age was really beautiful and wonderful for her whilst life was great. But when her life started to spiral out of control, she realized that being into New Ageism could provide her no form of anything to hold on to. It could do nothing to heal her. It could do nothing to provide for her. It couldn't fix the things that were going wrong. And so a friend of her invited her to an Alpha course, a place where she could hear the good news of Jesus. And she said over the course of seven or eight weeks, to much to her shock, 
much to her surprise and even to her anger at points, she realized that there is something better because the thing she found was Jesus. And Jesus brought transformation to her heart, transformation to her situation, transformation to her life. She was hungry, she was searching, and she realized, just like the people in Athens who were searching for the unknown God, that Jesus is the only way, he's the only truth, and he's the only life. And I feel like that church is our call too to this city. That God wants to bring transformation to your street. He wants to bring transformation to your school. He wants to bring transformation to the structures and the society that you live in. But he's not going to do it by magic or just by turning up with an angel one day. He's going to do it through us. And that's why we are here. We're here to bring the truth of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. Just as Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. The psalmist says, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So how do we do it? Kind of sounds easy, doesn't it? It's like, oh, I can do all that, I'll, you know. But it's really hard. I find it hard in my story. What does it mean to share faith? Well, here's a few just quick thoughts. The first is this. We need to have a heart of love and engagement in the world around us. For some of us, we've grown up uh, as Christians almost with the mantra that we should be uh, in the world but not of the world. But the way we've really lived it is that we've been out of the world but totally of the world. But I believe that in order for us to have any impact on our streets, on our schools, we've actually got to be deeply engaged. Paul didn't stand outside of the culture. No, he went to the very heart of the culture to bring the good news of Jesus to it. I've had to work really hard in the three years I've been here as someone who spends 90% of his time with Christians to go and find non-Christians to make friends with, to talk to, to listen to, to be part of their story. I was super blessed that one of my new friends, he uh, he's works for the fire service here in Pasadena. He said, I would really love it if Christians in Pasadena would come and befriend those in the city, those experiencing homelessness. I would really love it if Christians would help mentor them to help them get social security numbers and driving licenses so that they could start to work their ways off the streets of the city. He's not a Christian, but he recognized that Christians are needed to bring transformation. The second thing I, I realize is that we all need to do is that we need to be brave to invite our friends to things. It's easy to listen to the world which says that Christianity is boring, irrelevant, and has no place anymore. But yet I realize that my task is to invite, to open the door of friendship to the people I know. Last week, I think Laura and I invited about 15 people to come to the Easter Sunday services who didn't know Jesus. And I think about 10 of them came, which was wonderful, and some didn't. And that's a totally okay. We need to be brave. But really what we need to do is to find a space where we can debate, like Paul did, where we can discuss, where we can journey and dialogue with those who don't know Jesus yet. Now we don't have a marketplace in Pasadena, not like in the same way. 
We don't have a place where people can come and just talk and be honest and share their deepest feelings. I think as a society, we tried social media and we realized it was really not a great place to share our deepest thoughts. We just needed to shout at each other if we did that. And so as a church and churches across the world, we've tried to create a space for this. And the space that we've created is called Alpha. And Alpha is a place where people can come and experience truth, beauty, and goodness. It's a place where people can come over eight different evenings for the next eight evenings on Tuesday nights and to be who they are, to talk about the things that really matter to them, to share their deepest questions, their deepest thoughts, their deepest concerns. And at Alpha, the wonderful, beautiful thing is that no one will correct them, no one will preach at them, no one will rebuke them. They just get to share. And what we find is that as we do that, over and over again, as we just present the good news of Jesus and let people do what they want with it, is that over and over again, people start to experience truth, goodness, and beauty, and their lives are transformed. And so on Tuesday night, we're gonna launch our next Alpha course. We've been training an incredible group of leaders who are raring to go. We've got a really beautiful venue for an Alpha launch night party. It's a beautiful backyard. Uh, not too far from here. We've got a jazz band. We've got some great food. And all you've got to do is invite a friend. So a few minutes ago, uh, you would have got a text, hopefully, if we did it right, and you're on our database. And the little text is for you, not for you. It's for your friends. And what we're going to ask you to do is to send that text on to somebody that you know and invite them. You don't have to invite them to eight weeks. You don't have to sign them up on the spot. All you've got to do is bring them with you on Tuesday night. All you've got to do is say, hey, my church is throwing an amazing party with great food and a jazz band, and we're launching this thing called Alpha. Would you like to come? And if people like it, but they don't want to come back, it's totally fine. But if they find something of truth and beauty and goodness on Tuesday night, our hope and our prayer is that they will come back and they'll do the rest of the course. And as we pray for them, as we open the door to conversation, our hope is that they would find the very thing that they've been looking for, maybe their whole lives. So I'm going to show you a little promotional video for Alpha, and then we're going to pray together and invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us for a few minutes as we worship.